right. Welcome, everyone. I'm, I'm happy to see so many faces, some new, some old. I'm very proud to have Governor Olsen here today. Uh, I understand this is his first time at LSE, so we should ask him lots of really tricky questions uh, today. I'm sure you will do that. And I would like to say a few words about the Systemic Risk Center, which is a shiny new ESRC center. Our purpose is to understand systemic risk and hopefully find some ideas to trickle down to the policy-making body. At the same time, today's talk is an, in the intersection of systemic risk and the macroeconomy. So I'm very proud to have another, the, as, the, um, as the chair today, we have uh, Sir Charles Bean from the Center for Macroeconomics. So we cover both sides of today's uh, speech. And I'm very proud of the panel we have, uh, over and above uh, the Governor Olson. We have in Charlie Bean, we have an academic and we have an, a policy person, because Charlie was chief economist of the Bank of England and then deputy governor. We have Sushil Badwani at the end, who also has many hats. He has the academic hat, having been lecturer in economics here at LSE. He has a policy hat, having been on the, uh, on the MPC committee at the Bank of England. Sushil has a banker's hat, so he knows how banks work, has been at Goldman Sachs. And he has the notorious shadow banking hats, having been in a bunch of hedge funds. So I think we should cover all aspects of the problem today. And only at LSE, I think, uh, can you achieve uh, such greatness. And now I'll let Charlie Bean as the chair. Well, thank you very much. Um, uh, first of all, I should mention that this um, address is being recorded uh, and will be available on the LSE's uh, website uh, and as a, a podcast, um, so you may want to be aware of that, particularly for the, the Q&A. Um, the, the, the topic of uh, today's address is a particularly uh, important one, obviously ahead of the financial crisis. Uh, monetary policy was focused uh, on steering the macroeconomy, stabilizing inflation. Uh, prudential policy uh, was supposed to keep the bank stable. Um, but there was a missing bit in the middle, the systemic uh, risk aspect. Uh, and uh, as a result of the financial crisis, uh, there's been major changes in the, the thinking of the monetary and uh, financial stability policy framework uh, and also the institutional arrangements uh, that support them. Uh, now, the Norgus Bank actually has a long history of thinking about these issues uh, even before the, uh, the crisis, so it's particularly uh, apposite to have uh, the governor of the Norgus Bank here today. Oyston uh, Olsen uh, has been in that position uh, since the beginning of 2011. Uh, prior to that, in the, the uh, early part of his career, uh, was uh, spent at Statistics Norway primarily, um, and then from 1999 to 2005, uh, he was Deputy Secretary in the Economics Department of the Norwegian Ministry of Finance, where um, I discovered he was actually a backbencher at an international meeting in Paris that I used to go to. We never, we never actually formally met there, but we had a actually been in the same room on a number of occasions. Uh, from 2005 to uh, 2011, he was the managing director of Statistics Norway. 
uh, and then, of course, uh, moved to uh, be governor of the Norton's Bank, uh, as I said, at the beginning of uh, 2011. He's also uh, held a, a chair at the Norwegian School of Management. And with that, I will turn the floor over to you, Oyston. <coughs> Thank you, Charles, Professor Bean. And I would also like to thank in advance uh, Dr. Advani uh, and also Jean-Pierre Sigrand on behalf responsible for this institute or this center, this systemic risk center. And also let me just supplement uh, and uh, confirm what is being said. That this is my first visit. I should have been in long before, perhaps through my research career. But it's great to be here now for the first time in the London School of Economics area, to put it that way. It's also true that, as John mentioned, that we actually <laughs> met in this very interesting meeting in the OECD WP3, uh, compiling the G10 countries. The reason actually why we perhaps did not meet in that sense is that there is a difference between a chair of a meeting and being a backbencher in the Swedish delegation, so <laughs> just to say that. Uh, <clears throat> But it's, it's great to be here and talk on this subject. It's great to be here in this center, which brings forward research and applied knowledge in a subject that, that has now become a key issue in central banking. Because since the recent financial crisis in 2008 to 2009, Uh, central banks and academia have put systemic risk and interlinkages between monetary and financial stability high on the agenda. The crisis showed that keeping inflation low and stable was not sufficient to prevent imbalances in financial system. It also showed that the financial system is prone to excessive risk-taking and we were reminded of how costly a financial crisis can be. Another lesson, perhaps more specific to central banks, is that there are gains from closer integration of ana analyzing the interlinkages between financial stability and monetary policy. So clear macroprudential dimension has now been incorporated into banking regulation. Examples of this new orientation are the introduction of a systemic risk buffer and a time-varying counter-cyclical buffer for banks. The new macroprudential toolkit is being accompanied by higher permanent capital requirements and new regulations on banks' capital structure. The aim is to make the financial sector more resilient to shocks and to prevent and mitigate the build-up of systemic risk. As the new regulatory regime has been introduced, another dimension has been added to the discussion. The question being asked is the following. Do reformed banking regulation and new macro prudential instruments relieve monetary policy of 
any responsibility for financial stability. A good starting point for the discussion is Tinbergen's basic principle, which states that a wider set of policy instruments makes it possible to achieve a wider set of objectives. Furthermore, each instrument should be assigned to the objective it can achieve most efficiently. The comparative advantage of monetary policy is to control inflation and smooth fluctuations in output and employment. The first line of defense against shocks in the financial system is, on the other hand, regulation and monitoring of financial institutions. Macroprudential policy is part of this defense. We should also bear in mind that experience of the new regulatory regime and the macroprudential toolkit is still limited. It is too early to assess the effectiveness of new instruments. On the other hand, we do know that interest rates affect house prices and debt. This suggests that monetary policy should take into account the risk of financial stability. We have some slides here which I need to continue. So, and to operate them, I click. I click. I click. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mr. Professor Bean. Uh, Norges Bank has, in periods, which I will return to, to different several times. We have kept the interest rate somewhat higher than implied by medium-term inflation and output gap considerations. In other words, we have been leaning against the wind. Just a few words on the Norwegian economy. Norway is, as I guess all of you know, a large exporter of petroleum. And our economy has benefited now for uh, uh, at least 40 years, but especially the last 15 years, we have benefited from high oil prices. Well, until relatively recently. Unemployment has been low, and consumer price inflation has been close to 2.5%, which is the inflation target. But at the same time, house price... House prices have been rising sharply, and household debt is at a historically high level. Hence, our monetary policy trade-offs have, in recent years at least, differed quite a lot from those of our uh, neighboring countries and trading partners. Before I return to the interlinkages between financial stability and monetary policy, let me describe some concrete elements of our system or regime of macroprudential policy in our country. Banking regulation has recently been reformed in Norway in accordance, in accordance, of course, with the Basel III regulations and directives issued by the European Union. Capital requirements have been increased and the counter-cyclical capital buffer has been introduced. And the central bank, Norges Bank, is responsible for conducting analysis and providing advice on the level of this counter-cyclical 
buffer level. The Ministry of Finance is left with a final decision on this buffer. The current decisions requires Norwegian banks to hold a counter-cyclical capital buffer as from July this year. The banks have also increased their capital levels over the past few years. As a result, the financial system in Norway is now more resilient to shocks. Then a, an accountable and credible macroprudential policy must be based on an understanding of how systemic risk arises. The academic research on macroprudential policy issues is growing. But let us admit, or at least that's my view, we are still at an early stage. Some conclusions, however, seem to be robust. Many studies single out rapid credit growth as a symptom of rising systemic risk. This is also in line with the recommendations from the Basel Committee and the EU, which state that decisions on the counter-cyclical buffer in particular should be based on the credit cap. In, pre in preparing its advice on this counter-cyclical buffer, Norges Bank adds three other variables as key indicators. These are, as shown in the chart, house prices, commercial property prices, and banks' wholesale funding ratio. Together, the four indicators contain considerable amount of information about how cyclical systemic risk evolves or may occur. A number of studies have indicated that credit growth, real estate prices, and banks' funding ratio show a systemic, systematic pattern ahead of financial crisis. At Norges Bank, we have examined data from 16 OECD countries to see whether such a systemic, systematic pattern exists. We have developed empirical models for estimating the probability of a crisis. The model-based predictions can be interpreted as the prob probability that the economy is in, is in a pre-crisis period. This chart shows estimated crisis probabilities for the US, Spain, Norway, and the UK. The band reflects various combinations of explanatory variables and trend estimation methods. The data set covers the period from 1970 to 2013 with a total of 27 events which can be defined as a crisis. And as you can see from the chart, the estimated probability of a crisis increased markedly in the years ahead of the financial, of the most recent financial crisis in 2008-9. The UK is, however, the exception in this picture. Crisis probabilities also increased in the US 
ahead of the US savings and loan crisis, in the UK ahead of the UK's small bank crisis, and in Norway ahead of our banking crisis, our special banking crisis, which occurred in the late 1980s and into the early 1990s. All these episodes featured rapid growth in credit and rising real estate prices. So these empirical results support our choice of key indicators of financial imbalances. Household and corporate credit, house prices, and banks' wholesale funding ratio are statistically significant in the models and clearly influence the estimated probability of a crisis. The results also indicate that a low equity ratio in the banking sector can be an early warning of future instability. Now, while models are useful always, and while indicators and empirical models can provide support in the assessment of financial imbalances, they can, of course, only go so far. Their ability to produce a precise estimate of a systemic risk is limited. In addition, the assessment of systemic risk must include an analysis of the consequence of a crisis. Assessment of systemic risks are therefore always, and they have to be based on judgment. The primary aim of the counter-cyclical buffer is to make banks more robust. The buffer may, to some extent, also dampen the build-up of financial imbalances. However, its impacts on markets would depend on how banks increase capital ratios. And roughly speaking, banks have two options at their disposal. One, they can increase equity capital. Or two, they can reduce risk-weighted assets. Over the past years, in order to meet the new requirements, the six largest Norwegian, largest Norwegian banks taken together have almost doubled their capital ratio, measured by common equity tier one capital. This is primarily the result of a significant increase in capital. Retained earnings contributed the most, and banks actually widened their lending spreads in 2013 especially. Equity issues have been of minor importance. The second op option I mentioned involves improving capital ratios by reducing risk-weighted assets. Rather than slowing lending, Norwegian banks, in practice, have reduced, reduced their risk-weighted assets through lower risk weights and changes in the composition of their lending portfolios. Lending has increased more in the residential mortgage market, which features lower risk weights than corporates. 
Norwegians, Norwegian banks practice their actual adjustment strategies have reminded us that macroprudential policy can affect economic activity through various channels, and thus price stability. Macroprudential policy could also have an impact on the transmission mechanism of monetary policy. For instance, if new regulations reduce households' ability to borrow against home equity, the credit channel of monetary policy is likely to become weaker. Monetary policy, for its part, can be one of several factors contributing to a build-up of financial imbalances. We have learned again that long periods of low interest rates can increase the risk that debt and asset prices will reach unsustainable levels. And, as we have witnessed, low interest rates tend to prompt to in to prompt agents to intensify the search for yields from high-risk assets. Hence, even though the objectives and the instruments are different, monetary policy on the one hand and macroprudential policy on the other hand cannot be viewed as completely separate. Indeed, these two policies, monetary policy and macroprudential policy instruments, can work in the same direction. If the economy is booming with rising inflation prospects and the risk of a build-up of financial imbalances, a simultaneous tightening of monetary policy and a macroprudential tool for instance, the countercyclical buffer can underpin the objectives of both policies. Likewise, a pronounced economic downturn with increased bank losses can be addressed by lowering both the policy rate and the capital buffer. But in other situations, it may be appropriate to reduce the key policy rate while at the same time at least principally, raising the level of the capital buffer. If, for instance, there are prospects that inflation will become too low at the same time as debt and house prices are rising rapidly, the key policy rate will be reduced in line with its primary task of maintaining a nominal anchor for the economy. Unwarranted negative effects on financial stability of lower interest rates could, could, in this case, be counteracted by raising the level of the countercyclical buffer. Macroprudential policy and stricter banking regulation helps to reduce systemic risk. But we cannot act on the assumption that tighter regulation alone will be sufficient to prevent future crises. Monetary policy, on the other hand, has well-documented effects on house prices and debt. And again, as mentioned, mitigating the risk of a built-up of financial imbalances at least in the case of Norway, is given weight in our monetary policy uh, decisions. 
By taking financial stability considerations into account, we seek better, more stable outcomes for inflation and output in the longer run. And we think that a simple, analytical, at least relatively simple here, uh, can serve to illustrate this point. And let me use a few words to explain the, the, uh, the stylized framework, because it is stylized. Consider a central bank with a flexible inflation targeting regime. This means that the central banks gives way to inflation as well as to fluctuations in output. The expected future paths for inflation and output are included in a loss function. Let us, in addition, include a variable that captures the transmission of financial market instability to the wider economy. In the stylized model, the variable called set enters the aggregate demand function. To simplify the picture and or the events, we assume that there are only two states with respect to financial stability. Either we have normal times with well-functioning financial markets, or we have a situation of financial market stress. And this is represented by this alpha parameter. If instability in financial market emerges, and that is the case with alpha equals 1, the impact on the real economy will depend on the level, on the level of the financial imbalances. Within this framework, the risk of financial instability is endogenous, and monetary policy can influence the risk, this risk. A higher risk of instability can depress expected growth and inflation. When the central bank assesses the future path of inflation and output, it therefore has an incentive to dampen the buildup of financial imbalances. So in this way, the central bank can contribute to a smoother, a better expected path for inflation, output, and employment over time. Let us then assume an economic state, an economic situation in a country, for instance Norway, not unlike the one we have experienced in recent years, namely the situation where interest rates abroad decline, they decline further, and there are prospects that they will remain low for a long period. This results in a widening of the differential between interest rates at home and abroad, leading to an, an exchange rate appreciation. This in turn could lead to lower inflation and economic activity in Norway. And obviously the response of the central bank is to lower the policy rate. Let us then, as a point of reference for this model exercise, assume, and, and here I deviate, I deviate from the, this, the formal framework I just showed, let's assume as a point of reference that neither the central bank nor the agents 
recognize that financial stress could arise. The blue lines in the panel show the path for the policy rate, the output gap, inflation, and the financial imbalances in this case. Capacity utilization increases and inflation returns to target. However, the low interest rate level leads to an increase in the financial imbalances. And then let us go back to the framework shown to the extended model where the central bank recognizes that financial stress could arise and takes into account the possible impacts of financial imbalances on inflation and output. This scenario is represented in the chart by the red lines. The policy rate is still reduced, but to a lesser extent. In this scenario, it takes longer for inflation to move up to target. The policy stance also results in a somewhat weaker increase in activity. At the same time, the slightly higher policy rate contributes to mitigate the build-up of financial imbalances. So far in the presentation, as shown by the headlines of the charts, we have assumed that financial stress actually has not occurred. Hence, we have so far not reaped the benefits of the leaning against the wind strategy. Now let us see what occurs if financial stress does arise at some point further out. The red lines in the panel again shows a scenario where the central bank does take into account the possible effects of monetary policy on financial stress. When financial turbulence occurs, the economic setback is less pronounced and less prolonged than if the central bank had not taken this risk into account in monetary policy, as illustrated again by the reference blue scenarios, the blue lines. The benefit gained from keeping the interest rate somewhat higher in the short term is in this case a more stable path for inflation and output over time. As mentioned a couple of times, this formal framework is highly stylized. In the actual implementation of monetary policy, we are faced with a number of uncertainties and difficulties. First, developments in debt and house prices depend on a number of factors in addition to the interest rate. Second, both costs and benefits from leaning against the wind are highly uncertain. What we do know, however, is that the economic consequences of a financial crisis are so serious that some kind of insurance premium is worth paying. Let me now, at the end of my speech, uh, return to the realities in the Norwegian economy and the trade-offs that we actually have conducted and met in recent interest, rating, interest rate setting in Norway. 
As I said earlier, the key policy rate in Norway has in recent years been kept slightly higher than implied by medium-term outlook for inflation and output in order to mitigate the risk of a build-up of financial imbalances. However, through last fall, oil prices, as we all know, fell sharply, and the overall growth outlook for the Norwegian economy weakened markedly. On this background, Norges Bank cut the key policy rate with 25 basis points uh, to 1.25 in December 2014. Weight was given to countering the risk of a pronounced downturn in the Norwegian economy, again as a response of this, the, the fact that oil prices have been cut to half. Financial stability considerations were not taken off the table, but a new and quite serious risk had entered the scene. Now, throughout the next months, throughout this year's winter months, developments in the Norwegian economy were broadly in line with our expectations. The effects of the fall in oil prices on the real economy had been, and I'm referring to our March decisions now on the interest rate, had been relatively small. Inflation remained close to target, close to 2.5%, and unemployment also remained low and stable. At the same time, house prices continued to rise rapidly. Therefore, Balancing of the different kinds of risks, the risks of a pronounced downturn in the economy versus the risk of a built-up of financial imbalances, again shifted slightly from December. An overall assessment led Norges Bank to keep the key policy rate unchanged at this occasion at 1.25%, at, as I said, the policy meeting in March this year. However, we also communicated an intention to lower the key policy rate if developments in the economy ahead proved to be broadly as we project, projected in March. And I could add, at the same time, Norges Bank advised the Ministry of Finance to keep the counter-cyclical buffer unchanged at 1%. But the bank added that if house prices continued to rise rapidly and credit growth increased, it would be appropriate to advise the Ministry to raise the level of the counter-cyclical buffer uh, uh, effectively from the summer 2016. Mr. Chair, uh, in my introduction I posed a question. Do reformed banking regulation and the new macro prudential instruments relieve monetary policy of any responsibilities for financial stability? So let me conclude on this. While increased capital requirements and macroprudential policy can strengthen banks' 
solidity and mitigate the build-up of imbalances, we cannot proceed under the assumption that new regulations alone will eliminate the risk of financial instability. A robust monetary policy, in our view, should therefore take into account the risk of a build-up of financial imbalances. Monetary policy could then contribute to more stable economic developments over time. At the same time, monetary policy can and should not be overburdened. Banking regulation and supervision must be the first line of defense against shocks to the financial system. When assessing the monetary policy trade-offs, central banks must pursue in the longer run the primary objectives of monetary policy, which remains low and stable inflation. So thank you for your attention. Okay, um, as uh, I call you a discussant commentator, is probably a better uh, description. We have um, Dr. Sushil uh, Udwani. Uh, Sushil was a, a student here, undergraduate and graduate. Um, and a member of the economics department until the late 80s or early 90s? 91. 91, okay. Uh, when he left uh, to go off to the, the city, to uh, Goldman's and then uh, Tudor. Um, and from there uh, was uh, an early member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee between 1999 uh, and 2002. Uh, and after he completed his term there, uh, founded an Asset Management Company, Woodwani uh, Asset Management. Um, I should also uh, add though, that Sushil is the co-author of uh, an early paper on uh, the question of whether monetary policy uh, should take account of financial stability concerns and, uh, as the jargon goes, lean against the wind uh, with Hans Genberg uh, and um, Steve Cicchetti. Uh, so he's uh, particularly well-placed to, uh, to discuss this particular issue. So, Sushil. Thank you very much. And, and thank you, Mr. Governor. May, may I sit? Yes, oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay, fine. <laughs> uh, I, I really enjoyed, enjoyed your talk uh, and learned a lot from it. Uh, I should say that, uh, of course, I'm somewhat biased. Uh, as Charlie was alluding to earlier, this is quite a controversial area. And certainly, uh, about 15 years ago, uh, a lot of U.S. central bankers were opposed to leaning against the wind, famously Chairman Greenspan and then Chairman Bernanke. Um, So whenever a central bank uh, says that he thinks it's a good idea to lean against the wind, it certainly gladdens my heart. Uh, So, so, yeah, Uh, you you certainly get a huge endorsement from me. Uh, Now, of course, uh, this is a difficult area, uh, and and, and Charlie also wrote a very interesting uh, and important uh, early paper in this area. So uh, we've all been trying to, uh, I would say, wrestle with a number of difficult issues uh, around this important topic. So in the spirit of that, I'm going to ask you, uh, Mr. Governor, a few questions. 
if I may. Um, so my first question really uh, related to um, some very interesting charts that you showed us. Uh, and in, essentially what those charts showed us, and I should say at the outset that I know next to nothing about the Norwegian economy and I'm embarrassed that I might, uh, I might make a mistake. So, so, so think of me as a man from Mars sort of looking down on Earth uh, and asking some questions that, that seem uh, intuitively attractive but which may be wrong. Uh, but looking at the numbers you put up, you showed that the credit-to-GDP ratio uh, was at an all-time high. Uh, you showed that real commercial property prices uh, were pretty elevated, and both house prices, uh, the house price disposable income ratio and the wholesale funding ratio uh, were also pretty high. And these were, the four, these were four of your five favorite indicators which were signaling uh, concern. Uh, from a financial stability perspective. So given that, I would have expected your settings either for your macro proof tools or interest rates uh, to be acting quite forcefully. Um, but then I look at your interest rate. It's only 1.25%. Now, I know I say only uh, because compared to the ECB, it's pretty high. Um, but uh, it's 1.25% with an inflation rate of 2.5%. So you've got a negative real rate of minus 1.25%, notwithstanding these significant concerns about financial stability. Um, you also say in your speech... Uh, that interest rates are only slightly higher. Uh, 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 they're only slightly higher relative to some benchmark related to your medium-term inflation and output forecast. So I would certainly want to know, want to get some sense of what slightly means in this context and also whether slightly is in fact appropriate. Uh, if, if you have significant financial stability concerns, should you be putting so much weight on the macro pro tools? So, that, so that's my first question. And I guess my surprise deepened when you talked about the conjuncture. Uh, because, yes, you've had the uh, you know, very significant oil shock, which should have a big impact uh, on your economy. Uh, but you pointed out yourself that so far the impact had been modest. Um, one can't help but notice that headline inflation in Norway is high by the standards of other industrial countries at the moment, notwithstanding the oil shock. Um, so th 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 that just sort of made me wonder uh, again uh, about, about your monetary policy stance. But if I now turn to macro uh there is, of course, this reliance on these counter-cyclical buffers, uh, which made me a little nervous, because we know that they didn't really work in Spain. And again, I don't know enough about your country, but relying on your own speech, you do point out that lending hasn't really slowed. Uh, and in, indeed has increased in terms of the residential mortgage market, uh, which again uh, certainly caused worry to me. Um, and 
the in your speech you also referred to another possible tool to do with the equity ratio uh, of banks um, but in the study that you uh, refer to the, the Norgus Bank study uh, that particular indicator uh, didn't play a significant role in the 1980s crisis which, which, also, which indicator was that? Uh, the equity ratio um, so essentially I was wondering whether you were looking for more macro pro instruments because it seemed to me that the two that you've chosen uh, uh, you know it's at least possible that, that, that they might not be working uh, so I'd be quite intrigued uh, to hear uh, you know, what are the research you're doing in terms of other tools that you might deploy um, going back to monetary policy um, I, I was also uh, interested uh, in your line about the exchange rate. And, uh, of course, I recognize the dilemma. Uh, if you tighten in response to financial stability concerns, uh, you can certainly damage your uh, export-sensitive industries uh, in, in terms of the pressure that it puts on the exchange rate. However, um, your exchange rate over the you know, average over the last 12 months uh, is considerably weaker than it's been for some time. Uh, you're coming from incredibly elevated levels relative to PPP to getting much closer to PPP, uh, so far as I could tell. Uh, and, it, and it made me wonder whether this was actually a good opportunity uh, to... Uh, essentially lean against the wind more forcefully with monetary policy given uh, the, the clearly emerging risks in the fin financial stability arena. Um, I also uh, you can see I'm, I, I'm not giving many views I'm just asking lots of questions but, but that's because uh, you have significant experience in this area so another question that I had is that I'm sure you've observed uh, the uh, use of leaning against the wind-type policies in your neighboring country, Sweden, uh, uh, with, with great interest. Now, of course, this uh, in the blogosphere has become very controversial. Uh, I, I guess it started with Lars Svensson, uh, and then Per Janssen and, uh, and, and, and Stefan Ingres have responded, uh, quite cogently, I would say. Uh, but I'd, I'd love to have your backbencher perspective, uh, <laughs> if I may, <laughs> on, on, on how you see uh, the efficacy, how you assess the efficacy of Lean Against the Wind um, in, in Sweden. And my final question, uh, and I'll stop there, uh, is uh, essentially re relates to the argument that one big advantage that monetary policy has versus macro-pro instruments is that it gets into all the cracks uh, and it stops uh, nasty people like me sort of trying to <laughs> innovate in, in the shadow banking set sector. Um, so I just wondered uh, as to what lessons... Uh, you've learned uh, in managing the Norwegian economy in, in that regard. Thank you.
I shall turn the floor back to you at this point before we go to general Q&A. Yeah, um, I can remain specific. Right? Yeah. Oh, yes. So we have, yeah, so we have a dialogue. Yes, yes. 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 that's, that's yes. good. Well, thank you, Dr. Vadvani, for this very core... These are core questions which we have posed. I think you do know a lot about the recent economy. That's my implicit uh, impression. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and some of your questions are related. Uh, let, let me start by sort of uh, an obvious response from a central bank when they are challenged on their their, their way of waiting, different different waiting of, of, of forces and dilemmas, uh, referring to a special a special period of decisions. Then the, the, the general question is, of course, that we we have we are, we have an optimal decisions are always optimal, uh, and, and it's, it's it's definitely true in the sense that it, it's obvious that that we we see a, a, the best possible. Balance between different considerations, uh, and so uh, yeah, I'm not going to go back and return or, or go back on uh, the views we have had, especially in, in in recent years. But but you're very correct that we are faced with some dilemmas in uh, in uh, the Norwegian economy, which is a small open economy, up, slightly up north. Uh, well equipped by natural resources, and we have faced uh, some developments in our economy which have been quite divergent compared to our neighboring countries for quite some time now. Even well, the last the last 15 years, as I mentioned, even throughout the financial crisis, I mean we had a slight, we had a small dip, um, and then we. We, we pursued a very expansionary, this was a good, very market response in policy, uh, in monetary policy. They reacted forcefully in the central bank. This was well below for, before my time, uh, so it's a credit of others. Uh, but then also fiscal policy was, 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 was changed and it was quite expansionary. We, I mean, we, and we, we spent money we had uh, while many, many, many other countries, well, I, I think many other countries also did the right thing at the time, but they spent money they didn't have. So, so again, we, we came well throughout the, throughout the crisis. There was a small dip in, uh, or a small pause in the, in, in, in the development in house prices. But, but just just right after the crisis, house prices started to take off again. And, and while, while European economies get, went into a sort of second phase of a financial crisis with European economies in, 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 among the core countries, uh, increased focus on debt levels, uh, the response was a further lowering of uh, rates, and, and zero showed not to be the lower, the lower bound, <laughs> in a strict sense at least. And monetary policy was 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 stretched below, beyond that, as we all know. So, and, and if you compare that with the developments we've had, uh, you see the difference. And the dilemmas then are obvious for a small open economy. 
uh, with the, and, and also for a central bank, which at the end cannot achieve any goal. We, 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 I mean, we have basically, we, we, we say and we mean that we basically in monetary policy has a, a one instrument. It could be supplemented by communication, but it comes back to one instrument. And so our primary goal has to be, as I said in, at the end, we cannot neglect uh, nominal developments. So, uh, so the, this, the primary aim has to be, at the end, uh, nom- uh, to secure low and stable inflation. Again, as when that is achieved, uh, and I think it's also correct that central banks in general over the years has have learned some lessons and monetary policy has become more flexible in many countries. So we have allowed inflation to, to, come, to come down uh, and we still regard it as low and stable. Uh, and, and given that, we have been also able to balance uh, uh, other things. We have, we have a clear look on the, 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 on the, uh, the outlook for the output in the medium term, especially and then the overall development, both for prices and output, for a small open economy, is very much affected by the currency channel. So, 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 and and there, then we are very close to the primary task of monetary policy. Uh, so, so the the current currency developments remain very important. Uh, so we have to put a lot of weight to that. Uh, and, 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 though, and that poses a dilemma when, at the same time, house prices just go up and up and up, and uh, debt uh, levels by households especially follow. And, and again, I mean, I guess uh, Robert Schiller, or I guess other many prominent economists around the world, they, when they come to our country and look at the these figures, the debt figures, and our housing prices, uh, the developments and debt ratios, uh, debt levels as compared to uh, as, as share of the, our economy, or as share relative to disposable incomes by household, they they are very they they come in, they are very clear in their advices. This this is this they call it a bubble. Mm. I don't use that word actually. We don't use that word. I think it's very even our even though our debt level or, or debt by houses as uh, share of um, uh, uh, is, is close to 200 percent of uh, disposable incomes by households, and I don't think you find many countries uh, which you could compare with that. Mm-hmm. It, it could be Denmark, or it, I, I think it's Denmark. Uh, but they have had a reaction, a strong reaction in, in the last years. But what I'm, what I'm trying, to, what I'm heading at is that we have we have to give way to we have we have a primary goal: low and stable inflation. We have a flexible inflation target regime, which is very good. Then we have two asset prices, two asset markets. We have the housing market, housing prices. Uh, and, we ha- and we have an, another very important asset price for a small open economy, which should not, per- I, it should not be more oil. Then this has been the views, they say, until recently, when oil prices were high. Even then, we were very much aware we could not rely only on oil, because oil will not last forever. We cannot r- rely on prices 
to remain at $100 per barrel. So there are both common sense and good economic analysis tell us that our economy perhaps or should not be more oil independent than it was or it has been. So therefore, uh, the competitive situation for, uh, for the rest remaining part of our, our manufacturing industries or competitive industries in general are, remain an important issue, uh, important for employment also. And obviously, as we all know, uh, fluctuations in the currency, especially in our case, goes directly into the inflation prospects. So, 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 so we have these dilemmas, which are, which have been extremely important uh, and, and difficult to handle. But I would say uh, that, it, and I, I'm referring now to a longer period than my own in, in the central bank, uh, that uh, it has it had, has gone well. I mean, and, and if I can compare the fluctuations, the fluctuation in the real, uh, the, 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 in the currency, in the real, ter- in real terms, mm-hmm. you, we have had, we have had a, a real appreciation of our currency. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, we have also had experienced fluctuations in the nominal exchange rate. But if if you compare those movements and especially the fluctuations with those of other uh, raw material countries, Canada, Australia, and there are more, mm. uh, we have, it's been relatively stable. We could come back to some possible reasons for that. It's not only because of monetary policy decisions. Mm-hmm. It has also to do with uh, fiscal policy or fiscal policy framework, I think. But, but, but all in all, I think uh, policy, policies mm-hmm. have relatively good results. So I, I think the, uh, the judgments and the weight, weighting of different uh, forces have been sensible mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and balanced in a good way. And, of course, had we, if we had been not an island, but, say, a much more close, a close, close economy to a large extent, I mean, with, with all the, 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 with the strong growth and the sort of close to booming house market we have experienced for many years, I mean, interest rates should not be 1%. It mm-hmm. shouldn't be one and a half. It should be much higher, mm-hmm. much higher. Mm-hmm. So for all domestic reasons, interest rates should be higher. I agree. But we are, as Norway is a small open economy with, with, this import, with this important channel. And the, the, the only reason why interest rates are low and have been low for quite some time in Norway is the fact that interest rates abroad have been brought to zero or lower. So that's that's the fact. We have to we have to take that as a fact. And uh, and also you referred, uh, Mr. Uh, Dr. Badbane, to the to the recent developments after uh, oil prices dropped. Mm-hmm. And I follow you in your uh, your reasoning uh, because what what happened is that until the summer last year. We, are, we have experienced, as I said, uh, a steady, but relatively steady, uh, real appreciation. Uh, the, the correlation between oil prices and the currency until that time was not very close. Mm-hmm. I mean, the exchange rate is 
affected by so many forces and it's volatile. Mm -hmm. But from the summer last year and until now, you will see uh, a very close correlation between uh, the, 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 the curve for the, the, the declining oil price mm -hmm. and the corresponding development in the currency. So, and that's, and, 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 and we have been very, very aware of that in monetary policy deliberations uh, throughout <laughs> last fall and also in March uh, this year. And I've said several times that it's, 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 a, it's a good thing that we have uh, at least, <laughs> you could, I'm not discussing membership in any currency union, but it's a good thing in situations like this, especially for an economy like ours. To have uh, an old currency, it's a it's a buffer. It reacts. Uh, it uh, if oil prices stay at 50 rather than 110 dollars, we need to improve our competitiveness. We have done that already. If things are going like we have, like, like I briefly described, um, and 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 uh, and then you could of course say that hasn't it has the, the krona depreciated sort of sufficiently or perhaps too much could we sort of uh, could we could we could we, could we uh, increase could we have interest rates slightly higher of course we are sort of we're judging on that every time but but um, i mean if, if we increase the, the currency, uh, we will have immediate uh, reactions. Uh, if, we meet, if we increase the rate mm -hmm. or signalize that, uh, we will have immediate reactions in the, the currency, and we really don't know uh, what, when that stops. We are, we, could be, we are afraid of sort of counteracting the, the, the buffer effect I just described. And actually, if, if you go to our March decision, uh, the critics, or at least some critics, there are mm -hmm. always different camps in yes. Yes. to discuss monetary policy. Uh, but the main critics, or surprise perhaps, was that we, we should, they, they think that we should have lowered the rate further because uh, some think that uh, the depreciation that we have experienced is not sufficient. Mm -hmm. So these, these are all different, difficult uh, uh, judgments to, to make. Uh, we, all, we think, of course, that we, uh, we do think that we did the right thing, of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but we, are all, we are very aware of the uh, dilemmas. Um, I, I haven't answered all the questions now because okay, some right. of them, but yes. some of those were, were related. Yes. Thank uh, you very much. Thank you. Regarding the, um, you, you touched upon the, the macro pro policy uh, framework. You had a question whether we should uh, or seek for more instruments. Now, I, uh, I could just start by saying that. The role of the central bank in Norway on the macro-proof field is limited. Okay. It's, the, the role is not limited as regards the role in supervising financial stability in the economy. That's it in the law. Mm -hmm. But as regards uh, the power of sort of pushing the, the button, mm -hmm. 
uh, and deciding on instruments uh, it's, it's limited. We make advice to the an important advice to the ministry on on, the, on, the, on this countercyclical buffer, but uh, otherwise we have a separate FSA in Norway. It's not uh, part of the responsibility of the central bank. So you have the whole chain of micro potential uh, instruments, which actually in these days. Uh, are evaluated given the uh, situation I just described, or to be more precise, our FSA has suggested, they, they have suggested to extend the, the, the toolkit somewhat and to tighten policy. I could not elaborate more on that because we have we have a date, 4th of May, uh, and, and that's the, uh, where we should comment mm-hmm. on, on, on this set of new, new possible measures that could be, mm-hmm. uh, could be uh, com- coming on into the scene. Um, then you had a question on Sweden. Yes. <laughs> I know, I realized that. I, I tried to talk and talk to avoid <laughs> to come into that. Into that. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not doing that. But, I, but, I, but frankly, I'm, I think, uh, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not commenting on other decisions, sure. others, other, other banks' decisions. Uh, they have the same dilemmas as we all have, as we have, and obviously they, they seek the optimal balance. But let me let me let me let me answer by the by the following. If if I go, and I I, I have already underlined that we are the banks, central banks are seeking to do good things, right things for and and, and when when inflation expectations are well anchored, yes, we have we can seek other goals as well, intermediate goals. Um, but at some point, when the nominal target is challenged, really challenged, mm-hmm. we have no choice. And I think Sweden is close to that kind of situation now. And I, I, have, I understand very much their dilemma uh, and their shift because inflation, uh, although the, the economy grows at 2% plus, I think uh, unemployment is uh, slightly lower than it used to be. Uh, but inflation is, is, uh, is approaching uh, zero, and they are also afraid for deflation in, in a nominal sense. If, if we go back to, in, in our case, we reduced the rate by 25%, 25 basis point in December for the reasons I mentioned in my speech. Uh, last time we uh, lowered the rate was in March 2012. So between that, we have 1,001 days and nights with constant rates. In March 2012, what, what was the situation in the Norwegian economy then? It was booming. Well, the housing market was booming. Yeah. The growth was much higher than it was now. It was high and steady high, steadily high. But, in, but inflation was low due to the uh, continuous appreciation in our currency. Uh, and, and that was actually, and, and it, it was, it was below one percent or target 2.5. It was there was tendencies that it could be even lower if this appreciation of the currency continued. Mm-hmm. And that was the, in short, that was the reason why we actually lowered the rate mm-hmm. at the time. Of course, there were critics from the camp that warned against financial instabilities. Mm-hmm. But 
Again, that was the dilemma we faced at that time. Thank you very much. Uh, I think it would be a good time to uh, open it up to questions from the floor. Can you wait until you uh, get a microphone and can you give your name and affiliation and we'll start there, please. Uh, Amit Kara, um, also an ex-student from LSE. Um, so... Um, Unlike Sushil, I, I genuinely do not know very much about the Norwegian economy. Um, so pardon my question if, if it's stupid. Um, you, you have expressed a lot of concern about higher house prices, high household debt to uh, income ratios in Norway. Um, now, now, we know from the UK example in the 90s when inflation came down, it was clear that the equilibrium nominal interest rate also came down with it. And partly because of that, the equilibrium household debt to income ratio went up. It became easier for people to borrow. Do you think there's a case uh, for raising uh, the inflation rate, uh, the inflation target, say from 2.5% to something uh, higher, so that over the long period of time you can potentially have uh, a lower debt to income ratio? To increase the inflation target? Yeah. So say you raise the inflation target to 5% or something. So the, no, so the real equilibrium interest rate will probably not change. The nominal uh, equilibrium interest rate will be higher. It will make it more difficult for people to borrow. Um, so household debt could come down. And the, 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 there is, the, the effect is that the, the, bank, the central bank will infl- contribute to inflate the economy. Yes, in the short because, run you'll probably have to hold yeah, yeah. interest rates a little bit lower, but in the long run you'll hold them higher, <coughs> and that will lower your debt debt levels. Yeah. Well, well, uh, more often than uh, having proposals of increasing the inflation target, I have questions in the opposite direction, proposing <laughs> to, to to bring it down, because the. The euro and most, many other countries have 2%, and 2% is perhaps more common than 2.5%, 2.5% these days. Mm. In any case, my answer is uh, we have no plans. We are, we are, familiar, we are familiar and we, have content, we are content and we are managing our inflation targeting regime with our target. And we, have seen, there is, we see no reason to, uh, to propose any, any other. So that's the short answer. <laughs> Lord Bangers. Uh, Paul Miners, Chairman of the Council of the London School of Economics and a Minister in the last uh, Government in the Treasury. Um, Governor, thank you very much for a very interesting um, presentation. Two questions. You talked about the primary objective of uh, delivering stable inflation. Does this not mean that secondary or tertiary objectives such as financial stability cannot rely on monetary policy as a contributing force to achieving financial stability because under pressure you'll stand back from that secondary responsibility and focus exclusively on your primary responsibility. 
And secondly, linked to this, uh, Mr. Governor, you make the point that you give advice to your former colleagues at the Ministry of Finance on those levers that the central bank can't pull. What happens if your colleagues at the Ministry of Finance reject your advice on capital ratio? Do you then take a more extreme monetary policy position? <laughs> uh, on the first uh, question, if I understand it correctly, you are you're correct that we have, we have a primary objective in monetary policy, uh, but then we have an, another very important task as a central bank, which is, which is stated in the, uh, in, in the uh, central bank law, in our case also, and that is to, to supervise and to secure financial stability in general. And if we have any views, if we have views of any, any problems in the area, we, we, are either, we are obliged either to do something ourselves or to advise the ministry to give advice on their responsibilities. So, so in that sense, we, we, don't, we don't distinguish between secondary and primary objectives. But I, when I mentioned the word primary, it's, it's in, that's within our regime of, mo, of monetary policy. If, if that was an answer to your question. Uh, the, your second question was uh, in was was very concrete, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and the answer is it's not that difficult. We have, of course, we have an opinion, uh, and again, we think that when we make an advice, that's the optimal <laughs> uh, composition of instruments, uh, and that's the, that, and we would like them to to follow our advice. But then, if they don't. So far, they have actually followed our advice. Uh, we would just take that. It, that will not create any uh, strong reaction in uh, in our system. At least that's my first. That's my that's my response. Uh, we would take that as given. Uh, we would have an. Uh, it would. It would. Uh, it would. Uh, t- yeah, we will just. We, we look at. All uh, all decisions by made by the minister in particular on, on their responsibilities, and then we, uh, we we react on monetary policy based on that. But I, of course, I, I think I said in my speech that uh, they 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 interact. Uh, there could be poss- there could be situations in the economy where where uh, we think that there's a clear linkage, uh, practical linkage between the level of the buffer and the interest rate. So, so and, and any deviation from, uh, from our ad- optimal advice, principally, would have, could have some implication for monetary policy, principally. Any more? On over there, please. Uh, Nicholas Beale from CITEB. Uh, Mr. Governor, thank you very much for a very interesting speech, and I was intrigued by your charts at the beginning about predictors of systemic crises, and two observations from looking at them. First of all, it seemed that the higher estimates were more reliable than the lower estimates. And secondly, it seemed in some cases that the crisis hit after the 
risk appeared to have peaked and people seem to be, the risks seem to be coming down. Do you think that those are generic features of these kinds of warnings? Uh, I understand your question. I, th- I think on your latter part of the question, I think the answer is yes. I think it's, it's part of the methodology and the definition of uh, crisis variables that we have applied. Uh, so I, I think you are correct in your observation. On the, on the first part, which was the first part of your question was... You had balance which was showing the lower and higher yeah. estimates. Yes. And it looked as though the higher estimates were probably more reliable than the lower estimates. I, I doubt. I doubt. But I'm, I don't think so. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't. I don't think you can conclude on that. But I have to check that with the experts, which uh, which is actually here. Um, but you know, the band, uh, the band is, as I said, I think, is comes by. You have, you have, you have on the left hand of uh, the, the estimation equation. You have frequencies. Uh, events in, t- in terms of crisis measured as frequencies, and on the, on the right hand you have you have uh, a number of explanatory variables, and you vary the latter, and also you vary the estimation period, and then you get the band. So I don't think you can conclude, as you did in the first part of the question, uh, on that. But I have, to, I have to check, actually, the question. The, my answers have... Uh, if, if you're interested, you could have more precise answers afterwards. I'd love to see the paper. It would be very interesting. Yeah, yeah. The, the paper will also be available. Not here, but uh, at some point. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, one here. Hi, I'm James Pomer. I'm an economist at HSBC with a specialism in Scandinavia, so I do follow your uh, economy <laughs> rather closely. Um, I have a question, which is, how does fiscal policy come into the mix? So you talk about monetary policy and macroprudential policy. In Norway, for example, during the recent downturn of the oil price, there's an opportunity for fiscal policies to step in. Here, you don't necessarily have the financial stability risks of cutting the policy rate or etc., but also maybe in regards to competitiveness, maybe f- fiscal investment can help with the economy rather than just tackling the exchange rate. So I'm intrigued by how you think that interplay works, not just in Norway, but sort of across across the world. Yes. Yeah. Obviously, for in, in any country, fiscal policy is uh, very important um, along different dimensions. Uh, it also, it's also, it could be used uh, counter-cyclically, and we have some traditions for that in, uh, in, in Norway. Still, uh, when you, if you go back in history and if you, if you go throughout the 1990s, where fiscal policy actually had that as a primary task, that changed. Uh, there was a, a clear decision to change the division of labor in economic policy in 2001 when we got our inflation targeting regime. Uh, then, uh, and this division of labor more or less prevails now. Then it was stated that that um, monetary policy should be the first line of defense uh, when when you have fluctuations in the activity level. Uh, while uh, fiscal policy, especially in light of these uh, enormous resources and these revenues that we should feed into the economy over the years, and actually that's what we have done, should have a longer-term perspective. And that, that makes sense. 
So, so, so fiscal policy should have a longer-term anchor. But at the same time, it was also stated in the guidelines that when disturbances occur, which they, and 2008-9 is a very good example, fiscal policy should also respond. But there, there, is, there are more lags and, and in, to, to have a good conduct of fiscal policy. So, so it still makes sense that, uh, that, uh, that monetary policy plays this role of being a first line of defense. And, and well, this is uh, sort of my view at least, but I've said it before as a governor, that so far after oil prices have declined, uh, there is no, there, there is, we are not close to a crisis. We have no crisis in our economy. I mean, unemployment is 3 or 4% different, different measures. Uh, and uh, the economy is still growing. The prospects are also ro- relatively positive. Uh, so, so I don't think uh, I'm not talking on behalf of any government. I'm not, I don't know what they're going to present for the, in the budget or next year. But I think I they, they talk. The politicians, minister of Fin- minister of finance, talk. Uh, similarly as I do now, so far at least. Uh, and then, as you all know, although fiscal policy is not the topic of today's uh, meeting, uh, you know the, 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 the system that we introduced, the fiscal rule that we introduced, the, um, should, the, the intention was to shelter the fiscal, actual fiscal policy from fluctuations in oil prices, and, and we have achieved that. So, so, so therefore, the, when, even though oil prices have been cut to half, unlike, say, Russia, that does not at all affect fiscal policy in the short to medium term. And that's a very good thing. Of course, if it stays, if they stay at $50 compared to 110 that will affect our revenues in the longer run. But that's a different issue. One at the back and one over there, and that'll be the final question. Hi, uh, Nick Skoropoulos, FX strategist at Barclays. Uh, I also follow the Scandies quite closely, and so I have a question um, on monetary policy. So it seems to me that with inflation close to 2.5% and inflation expectations firmly anchored, the way I view the dilemma is really whether you are willing to tolerate big deviations of output from target on the one hand, and then on the other hand contemplate... Um, the increasing uh, financial instability, such as ha- uh, higher house prices, etc. So, in, oil prices have actually rebounded quite significantly over the last few months. Are currently at $65 per barrel, um, and so I was wondering if you do not see oil prices dropping back to levels that we saw earlier in the year. Uh, and with inflation not expected to drop further, uh, according to your estimates, actually you are penciling in inflation going higher. And the way I understand this is probably a delayed pass-through from you know, a, a, a depreciating exchange rate. Then is the main emphasis going to be on, on uh, credit measures, the credit measures you mentioned? Because that's, that's the dilemma in my view. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, 
Let, let me. Uh, you're very, you're, you're very close to to, to so the, I hear, I can hear that you follow the Norwegian economy closely. <laughs> you are, you are, you are close to the actual. Uh, uh, to, to the uh, to the update and to the to the uh, to, to some consideration some potential considerations that we're going that we could should make uh, next time, but for obvious reason I'm I'm I'm, I'm not only a bit hesitant I'm very hesitant I'm not going to <laughs> comment on I'm not going to give you an update uh, and, and use signals here because and the obvious reason is that we have an interest rate meeting in a few days. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and the final questions over there. Thank you. Uh, Colin Birmingham from BNP Paribas. Uh, my question just uh, relates to the, the oil prices. Uh, so from, from last year, the, the oil price fell significantly. Um, now, it has, has rebounded a bit, as we, we heard from the, the last question. But given the, you know, the size of uh, oil exports and the, the nominal income earned from that, uh, it was a, a significant terms of trade shock, uh, and as a consequence, a, a significant income shock to the economy. So I would have expected to see uh, you know, uh, an impact in the economy more quickly. Um, in your view, why has it you know, been quite a, quite a slow burner uh, in that sense? Do you think people are kind of looking to the future and expecting a rebound? Or, um, you know, what's, your, what's your own view on that, that matter? Thanks. What's your question? You would expect a more serious situation to occur after the shock, the terms of trade shock? Quicker and bigger. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, yes. Uh, well, it's. it's um, it's correct that the, 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 the oil prices have been cut to half, but, but I think the answer is part of the answer is what I said on fiscal policy. You know, the, if you take the revenue side of, the, of from coming from oil, the, based on our system, the, the government takes 80 percent of the profits. We have a tax rate of effectively seventy-seven uh, percent, I think. Now, so so the, the government takes takes most of the profit, and we have this fiscal rule and this buffer system through the fund, which actually shelters fiscal policy from the impacts. So that's one part of the answer. But then you're very then then we have then this the, the petroleum sector. If you take the not 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 the the activity as such, but the say the investment is 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 very high. You have you have big numbers like the, in 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 Krona, Norwegian Krona, We have the, the the investment has reached two hundred more than two hundred billions Norwegian Kroner. That's the level. Uh, and it's, and if just uh, as a comparison, the level of investments in the in the in the manufact- traditional manufacturing sector uh, in Norway is 25, 25, 30 billion versus 200 billion. And when when these 200 billion when they when they go down, uh, we have been used to the positive impulses from the activity going up and up. Whether they go down. That has Im- impacts to the rest of the economy, and they have they will go down this year, according to our estimate, of 15 percent, uh, and another 10 percent next year. So over two three years, we they will go down by 25 30 percent. 
that's, we, we, we do see the impacts. People are laid off. In, number of engineers are laid off already. Uh, house prices in the areas in Stavanger and the, the, in the areas where oil prices really boomed when things went up are now going down. So we see the consequences. But you are correct, and we also observed, in our case, we were afraid for a more severe downturn when we met in December in the monetary committee. That was actually a main reason for the reduction in the rate, because it was kind of some kind of insurance that we took out. We would we'd be afraid of a more severe downturn, as he also could foresee. But it, that, hasn't, that hasn't occurred. So we have been, say, in that sense, positively surprised so far. Uh, and uh, I think one of, the, one of the reasons could be that if you, take, if you start off in the labor market, these people are highly educated. And, 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 and still a crisis doesn't come that quick, quickly. And there's, there's no crisis in the Norwegian economy. There's, there's no tightening in fiscal policy. Uh, it's, it's the other way around. Fiscal policy remains expansionary uh, in, in all, in both in the, uh, the central part of the government, but also in municipalities. So these engineers, at least a number of them I, we know, have been employed in the public sector. So, so all in all, things are uh, going relatively well. I, I couldn't be more precise than that, I think. <laughs> I think that's a very good note to finish on. Uh, I mean, clearly the, the issue, the, the interface between monetary stability and financial stability, I think, is going to be occupying uh, central banks and policymakers and academic researchers uh, for some years to, uh, to come. I know the Bank of England here has a big research program to try and uh, think through these issues. Other central banks are working on the, uh, the same uh, uh, same topics, and of course, over time we will uh, acquire more experience of macroprudential instruments. Of course, the real test is going to come in 10 or 15 years' time when everybody's forgotten about uh, the global financial crisis. There's another cohort of people in the financial markets who say this time is different. Uh, the politicians will all be screaming against any attempt to rein back credit growth because they'll say, oh, it's absolutely fine, it's all justified. And the role of central banks will be to remember history uh, and to make sure we don't repeat the mistakes of the, the past. Um, so will you all join me uh, in thanking uh, Governor Olson again for a very interesting talk. <laughs>